Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 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 Recognize that? Yeah, of course. That is the Lord's Prayer, or sometimes we call it the Disciples' Prayer or the Model Prayer. It is an example that Jesus gave to his disciples when they saw that he'd been praying and they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. Well, in this episode of the Discover the Word podcast, we're going to walk through some aspects of the Lord's Prayer, this model prayer, and by acknowledging and recognizing some of the difficulties that are inherent in cultivating a consistent prayer life. Our hope is that this next hour will be an encouragement to you and to me to pray. So pull up a chair and join the rest of the group. We'll get started on our study called Lord, Teach Us to Pray on Discover the Word. Hi, and welcome to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. And for this episode, you're at the table with Elisa Morgan and Bill Crowder and Daniel Ryan Day and Rasul Berry. And it is Rasul who will be leading us in these conversations about prayer and specifically the Lord's Prayer. Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 6 will be the home base texts for this study that will, we hope, encourage us to pray. I also mentioned that there are some inherent difficulties in having a consistent and meaningful prayer life. And uh, lest you think that we've always got all this together and we don't have as much difficulty as you do, well, let me just say that uh, as we got ready to do this series of conversations on prayer, we thought we were all set to go and ready to start recording, and then we remembered something that we hadn't prayed. Okay, let me let me let me pray. <laughs> oh man, uh, God, we thank you that you invite us to talk to you and with you. Uh, thank you that you've given us the means uh, through your word, uh, through the traditions of the church and ultimately through your Holy Spirit. And we pray as we continue to grow uh, in prayer that you would give us postures of humility, of a desire to learn and of the type of um, invitation that you uh, prepare for us, that you want to commune with us, you want to hear from us and you have something to say to us as well. So would you continue to speak to us as we go through our day and as we go through this series? In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask y'all something. What immediate reaction do you have when you hear the phrase, can we talk? <laughs> Ooh, almost always negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it shouldn't be, but anytime I hear that, I'm like, oh man, the hammer's about to drop or something mm-hmm. not good's getting ready to happen. Yeah, I just assume I've done something wrong and I'm about to get called out for it. Yeah, I get kind of sweaty palms, butterflies in my stomach. Kind of want to run from the room. Yeah. Yeah, no, I immediately, depending on who it is that's talking, try to recall real quickly what did I do <laughs> to them. So it's interesting, right, that we can feel that. Why do you think that is when, someone kind of takes the initiative to make space or time to talk with us that we 
we might have that reaction. Well, we just go, I think, shame. You know, we just go straight mm. to shame, straight to the negative. I mean, I've had people say, I'd really love to get to know you better, or I'd love to hear your story, or that kind of thing. And I still feel a little unsure because that's a very vulnerable request, but it's more someone's interested and it's more positive. But that phrase, can we talk, sounds like something's been building and mm -hmm. it's serious and it's going to be confrontive. Yeah, I don't go to shame as much as you were describing, Elise. I go more to the fact that I think many of us, if not most of us, just don't enjoy confrontation. Mm -hmm. And that feels confrontational. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. Hey, can we talk? And it's the phrase, right? We've gotten used to hearing those particular words in a way that often precedes something negative coming afterwards because we have other phrases that we might use if we have good news or, hey, I'd love to share something with you, right? It's a similar phrase to can we talk, but that one we typically hear that phrase and we're like, oh, something good happened in their life and they want to share it with me or even the, hey, I'd love to get to know you better, Elisa, that you referred to, it does bring vulnerability, but they're interested or they want to get to know us. Whereas that phrase, can we talk, or the text, hey, you got a few minutes, or something <laughs> like that, right? Like mm -hmm. those, those phrases were used to mm -hmm. preceding something that's going to be hard to get through. Yeah, I remember there was a campaign that some believers put together years ago, and it was kind of like statements, and then that we were maybe used to hearing, and then it would have God at the end. Mm -hmm. And one of them was, can we talk, dash, God, right? And it just kind of made me think in some ways, that's what prayer is, a conversation with God, an intentional one. And yet it feels like for some of us, prayer can also feel intimidating. Mm -hmm. Where do you think that comes from? The fear factor that can sometimes be attached to or associated with us talking to God. Well, I think a lot of times we just don't feel like we're very good at it. Mm -hmm. When you've been exposed to people who maybe could fall under the old category of prayer warriors, people who really seem to have a handle on this mysterious communication with the invisible God. I mean, that can be intimidating because you say, man, I'm not that guy. I can't do that. Isn't that crazy how we rank prayer that way? You know? yeah. I mean, the way I understand it is, you know, it's an equal opportunity. Everybody's the same. I mean, God just hears our hearts I really think he's open to however we approach him. Just, he just wants us. And when you put it, can we talk, comma, God or dash God, I think there's a difference between when I want to talk to God about something, yeah. that often feels a little more accessible and not as intimidating. But as soon as I hear that God wants to talk to me about something, I do the same thing that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation. I think about oh, what are all the wrong things that I'm doing? Or how is God going to come in and like redirect my life to something I don't want to do? Or mm -hmm. <laughs> right? like, I don't assume immediately like, you know what? I think God just wants to reiterate his love for me. <laughs> it's, that's never that assumption. Yeah. And so part of listening to God or having an awareness that God wants to talk to me, I just naturally attach a negative perception to what God would say. Mm. Yeah, I think we can all relate to that in... The thing is, we're not alone. We're going to be spending the next few conversations really exploring when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray and the makeup of that prayer, how we can use it and apply it for our own lives today. 
Because prayer in a lot of ways is the most vital aspect of our relationship with God. Mm -hmm. It allows us to communicate, to express, to confess, to receive what he says is true about us and really engage in a way that's very dynamic. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 11. And in verse one, you know, we see the disciples also feeling the same type of curiosity or maybe even insecurity about how to talk to God. Could someone read Luke 11, 1? One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. Interesting. So here are the disciples, you know, in the context of Luke. They, he had already dispatched him to go and heal and to proclaim the, the kingdom. You know, they were actively involved. These are the leaders. And yet they ask him to teach them to pray. What do you think prompts them to ask that question? This was part of rabbinic mm -hmm. practice uh, in ancient Israel. Part of rabbinic practice was a rabbi would gather a group of disciples. They would be with them 24-7. They would do life together, and they would teach these disciples so that the disciples could then win more disciples to the rabbi. And part of what they would teach would be the way they would teach through their everyday practices. And Jesus, so many times it's recorded in the scriptures where he would go to a private place and pray. It's not surprising that the disciples would say, well, why are you teaching us everything else? Don't leave this part out. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And that okay. seems to be the context here because it's one day Jesus was praying, mm -hmm. which made them then ask, hey, I noticed you were praying. How do you how, do it? How should yeah. we pray? How, mm. how do we do that? And yeah, to Bill's point, so much of being a, a disciple was learning how to do spiritual life rhythms the way that your discipler, the rabbi, did those rhythms. And so learning maybe the nuance of prayer that that rabbi would teach was part of being a disciple. I'm so glad you brought that out, Daniel, because that's what a disciple is, a follower, a learner, a student. And that gives us the first, I think, important clue is the, the teach us involves an aspect that we as students ought to position ourselves, are invited to position ourselves to be learners of prayer. I think oftentimes we come into church communities or Christian communities and it, you just feel the expectation or the weight of just, I'm supposed to know exactly how to do this. And that's where performance comes in or imposter syndrome comes in. And instead, if we recognize and embrace that, no matter what level of service that we might be indulging in or engaging in as leaders, that there's still opportunity to grow. And, and that's something that I saw in preparation for this. I was thinking about a celebration of disciplines, the classic from Richard Foster. And he writes mm. to understand that the work of prayer involves a learning process, saves us from arrogantly dismissing it as false or unreal. We all have room to grow, whether we've been praying to the Lord for eight days or 80 years. So mm. if we're all learners, let's just kind of workshop this for a second. Like, what are some things that mm. you've learned about prayer over the years that you didn't know before? One thing is the two-way conversation that it is, mm -hmm. you know, and we've referenced this. It's talking and listening. And it, that's a huge piece because, I mean, most of us know how to talk, <laughs> but we're not so great at listening. And then how do you listen to God? How does he speak? And, you know, you can answer that in his word, uh, through the Holy Spirit, in your heart, uh, through other people, through sermons. You know, there's lots of ways that God can speak, but to really listen and discern, now that's a whole nother 
discipline. Mm. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah, if I could uh, just kind of piggyback on that a little bit, I think one of the things that makes prayer intimidating is the idea of public prayer. And when we're asked to pray publicly in front of a group, because it's easy to get all knotted up in yourself wondering what are they going to think of me if I say this or if I don't say that. I think the, the big reality that's easy to lose touch with is that when we're praying, we're talking to God in that conversation Elise is describing. We're talking to God. Other people might be listening in, mm. but our words are directed to Him to <laughs> kind of back that up. Uh, I heard a story many years ago of when Bill Moyers was, uh, I think he was the press secretary for Lyndon Johnson back in the 60s, and they were having one of these presidential prayer breakfasts, and Johnson asked Bill Moyers to open the time in prayer, and he bowed his head and started softly praying. And in the middle of his prayer, Johnson said, Speak up, Bill, I can't hear you. And Bill Moyers said, I wasn't talking to you, Mr. President. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think about that sometimes because in public prayer, it's so easy to get distracted by the human audience mm -hmm. that we don't really focus fully on the real audience. I think the biggest thing that I've learned or grown in is uh, I grew up in church. And so seeing other people pray and learning to pray for myself I thought it always had to include words, but then over time, and especially the last few years, just learning that prayer is like a heart posture of openness to God and sitting in silence, e even going beyond words in our prayers of just sitting in God's presence and trusting that he's there and the passages that talk about that the Spirit actually knows how to pray better than we do. And so just trusting that the Spirit's interceding and that Jesus, our brother, is interceding and that we don't need to have words and that it's okay just to sit in God's presence has been a huge growth for me. And sometimes that leaves me feeling uncomfortable because I feel like I should be saying things. But in reality, if God's really there, then I can also just sit in his presence. No, that's so good. I think for me, a major moment was learning about praying the scriptures, mm. you know, discovering that, for example, the Daniel in the Bible, <laughs> when he prays in nine and Daniel nine thirteen, he he prays just as it is written in the law of Moses. All this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. And there, Daniel is referencing uh, both Leviticus 24 and Deuteronomy 28, where God lays out blessings for obedience to the covenant and curses for rebellion. But he doesn't end there. He also leans into the promises of God to forgive that are found in uh, Deuteronomy 30 as well. And so just learning, I can just, if I don't know what to say at a certain point, I can just point to the scriptures itself and just repeat some of the prayers in the Psalms or, you know, in, in different aspects of scripture has just really helped me understand that that's what they did. <laughs> you know, that's what Daniel did. He says, look, God, this is what you said in your word. Please let it be so. And so as we continue on this journey, the reality is that there are aspects being silent or understanding how scriptures relate or the fact that prayers to God and not to other people, even in public, there's these valuable insights that we can all continue to learn. And Jesus doesn't rebuke their requests with, how are you asking me to pray when you've been on mission trips or you've served in leadership? He doesn't criticize <laughs> them. We read his response in Luke eleven two when he says, when you pray, say, and then 
what follows is what we you know know as the lord's prayer he was showing them how to talk with god over the next few conversations we'll explore more about what he told them and what he has to say to us in his word about prayer but it's nice to know that when god says can we talk it's an invitation not a confrontation yeah that does help doesn't it i like that when god says can we talk it's an invitation not a confrontation because learning about prayer is a lifelong process but communicating with and communing with god both talking and listening is without a doubt a key part of our relationship with him and something that he invites us into and so let's take the rest of the time and walk phrase by phrase through what jesus gave his disciples when they asked him lord teach us to pray and he began with the familiar words our father two words that speak volumes and so that's what this next part of the conversation is about one of the things growing up that you learn are the rules for how to address people especially people older than you one time i heard my mom refer to my aunt by her first name and I made the mistake of saying, yeah, hey, Maria, without putting the aunt in front of it. <laughs> Mom made it very clear very early oh, that, gosh. you know, yeah. you need to put, as she said, a handle on that name. And it's Aunt Maria <laughs> to you. It's Maria to me. And uh, that it was not cool to just call her by her first name. You know, who are some people growing up that you remember you, it was made sure that you were supposed to honor them? I think about the fact that there's almost a regional component to this, mm. too, because my kids grew up in the South, and we taught them to say, yes, ma'am, yes, sir, no, ma'am, mm-hmm. no, sir. Mm-hmm. And when we moved up north, they actually got scolded <laughs> for saying yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, yeah. because they yeah. thought that they were being sarcastic. Which, you know, they might have been, but (laughs) (laughs) they were taught to address yes, Mm -hmm. ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. And it was not received uh, in a different part of the country. That's so good, Bill. And and I remember that, too. And I'm thinking of teachers and coaches, principals, you know, people who have a title before what they do, a doctor. You know, those are all like, you've got to put that title or handle, as you Mm -hmm. were calling it before the name. And, mm-hmm. and I wanted so much at times to call a coach by their first name when we had become friends, but it wasn't appropriate. You could say coach, you could shorten mm-hmm. it to just the title, yeah. but you can't go Jack or yeah. Barbara or whoever, you can't do that. And I grew up, there was a lot of emphasis on Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so and making sure that you had that Mr. or Mrs. before or miss uh, mm-hmm. before the last name. And I remember being pretty confused because I grew up where that was like a, a very strong emphasis. But then like as I was growing up, there seemed to be kind of a cultural change that was happening of people being like, nope, that was my dad or that was my mom. Right. Call me first yeah. name, which I always struggled with because my mom had emphasized that so much. Yeah, yeah these are very important cultural distinctions and, and these titles uh, have this fancy word called an honorific, and they just extend mm-hmm. beyond family. Uh, you know, Lisa, as you mentioned, teachers, doctors, and in fact, there's an entire team at the United Nations called the Protocol and Liaison Service, which trains people how to address world leaders 
and they see their responsibilities <laughs> as essential to the goal of harmonious international cooperation. <laughs> Literally, it's like they are like, we don't want to start at World War Three by someone being offended or being slighted by <laughs> using the wrong title. True. So it's really mm -hmm. important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so as we continue our conversation about prayer and how Jesus instructed his disciples to pray, I think it's noteworthy that he begins by addressing God with an honorific, with a title. And just to kind of recap, the disciples in Luke 11, 1 had asked him, how do you pray? Lord, teach us to pray. And then he responds. And one of the things we notice is that depending on which version you read the Lord's Prayer, and there's, it's recorded both in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6 in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, that uh, one is the more, you know, it has different little nuances. I mean, same basic structure. I kind of wanted to throw that out there, too, to y'all. Like, wh why do you think there are some differences in the prayer that we read, the Lord's Prayer in, in Luke 11 and Matthew 6? The easy answer is that this is probably something that Jesus taught numerous times, and we're given records of two different occasions when he was teaching this. And so it wouldn't be necessarily exactly identical every single time Jesus taught it. You see elements of him repeating his teachings at different times. Yeah. My Bible has a small note in it that says that in some of the manuscripts for Luke, Father in Heaven is there. Hmm. But I guess the majority of manuscripts that they have for Luke just have Father. And so, I mean, it could be that both of them had originally written down the same prayer, but the version that we've gotten at this point is one that has Father in Heaven and the other one's just father. Yeah, one thing we'll discover is that I think even some of these nuances and wrinkles really reveal the value of the Lord's Prayer as a model prayer and not as something that the emphasis mm -hmm. was on reciting verbatim the same way, the same time. Yeah, we get stuck with that, Russell. I'm glad you said that. It's like we have this kind of magic formula thing we do. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and liturgy is fantastic. You know, it helps us, again, to align our hearts, um, the routines of it, the sacredness of it. But it's not a magic formula that when we say it just right, that's when God hears. And actually, we'll see in, in Matthew 6, I mean, Jesus addresses that right before he actually offers his prayer. So we know that he's not leaning into just repetition. So without further ado, let's read what we got in both Luke 11 verse 2 and then also in Matthew 6 verse 9. Could somebody read that for us? Luke 11 verse 2, and he, Jesus, said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Yeah, and then Matthew 6 9, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Okay, there's hallowed. Now, I think and probably <laughs> in our everyday vernacular, this is probably the only time I use the word hallowed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I say hallowed. And, and yeah, that's what I was going to say. Where did I get that? <laughs> yeah. I actually don't even know if there's a correct way, hallowed versus hallowed. Yeah. But the word itself, right, just means that something is holy or set apart as special. Right. And it's actually kind of a passive imperative that we might not kind of fully grasp that it's not just a description of what is true, but there's an, an actual imperative to say, essentially, make God's name holy or elevate it. Not It's not just a description of what is, but also indication of how we ought to treat God's name. So is it kind of like our Father in heaven or Father in heaven, I make your name holy or I recognize 
that you are holy. Yeah, that's kind of the passive part where it's like it's a recognition, but in a way in which there's an expectation that I reverence God's name is holy. So I acknowledge that you are holy or Father in heaven, you are holy. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that builds off of the Ten Commandments yeah. where it talks about honoring God's name and not misusing God's name. Yeah, especially Daniel. I was thinking the same thing. When you remember that in both Matthew 6 and Luke 11, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. This would have certainly had connections in their minds to the Ten Commandments hmm. from Moses. And do you notice a little bit of a tension between this sense of the holiness, the hollowness of God's name mm-hmm. and the first part, our Father? Yeah. Like how might that have been received by the disciples or just the people of that time period? to hear Jesus say, oh, you want to know how to pray? One way is to address God as your father. And Daniel, you know, you mentioned the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there wasn't a whole lot of chatting with God as a father. Yeah, that would be probably the most surprising part of it. Mm -hmm. In fact, even the name, the way that phrase would probably hit them is thinking about the unspeakable name of God. Mm -hmm. And so like Mm -hmm. reverence and holiness. So having any kind of familial or relatable word with God at the beginning, especially leading off with that, would probably have been pretty surprising. But what a beautiful picture of God is both close to us, but also other, right? Like we can experience God as relational and with us and walking through our pain with us. And Jesus experienced a lot of that when he was here on earth and all of that. But God is also so much other, so mysterious, so much bigger than anything we can imagine. And so I think that's maybe part of the beauty of this prayer is how it captures both transcendence of God, but the imminence of God, both yeah. the, the bigness of God, but his closeness. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And actually, one of the things that was interesting is that there are a few verses in the Old Testament where God positions himself as father as well. It's not as prominent as in the New okay. Testament. And that's something that Jesus expounds on. But even in um, Exodus chapter four, verse 22, it says, uh, then say to Pharaoh, this is God telling, talking to Moses, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go that he may worship me. And mm-hmm. so there is some sense of, yeah. of that in the Old Testament, but Jesus definitely expands on it. And not only that, but the Apostle Paul picks up on it in the book of Romans, talking about the Holy Spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. (laughs) And that's speaking again in the context of prayer, that we can go to God with that level of intimacy while not forgetting who he is. Yeah, that reminds me of the first time I went to Israel and I was I uh, gotten off the plane and we were getting a tour in Jerusalem and this little six year old just ran up to his dad and said, Abba, Abba, and just kind of like ran and kind of hugged him. And I was like, that was the first time that I had heard it in a non-church atmosphere. And it was really like, daddy, like, you know, I, I need you come here. And it's just such an mm. intimate picture of what Jesus invites us into and not just by name, but also what it means. You know, in Matthew 7, he says, look, which one of you, if your son asks him for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for, for a fish, would give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who was in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Mm-hmm. Who are we talking to? We're talking to the one who is the good father who invites us to ask 
and yet whose name is holy and who is to be revered and reverenced above all. And that's who we get to hold together with both God's name being holy and his name being father. Jesus told us to pray like this, bestowing all these honorifics that we can say and we that we just talked about too. There's many more majestic, holy, powerful, omniscient that we could describe. But the first part of this prayer is simply to worship God for who he is. So let's do so right now and just pray. And as we close out, Father, thank you for being in heaven over and above our situations, yet close enough to be Abba to us when we call on your name. Help us to reverence your name with our lips and with our lives. In your son's precious name, amen. Yeah, how important those first two words of the Lord's Prayer are. How we address God says a lot about our relationship with Him. And balancing those two ideas of transcendence and imminence or nearness to us in our lives is a crucial perspective that can be reflected in how we pray. Now, for the rest of this episode, we want to close each part of the conversation with a word of prayer that reflects on the aspect of the prayer Jesus modeled for his disciples when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. And so in that segment, we talked about addressing God as Father. Rasul? Jesus told us to pray like this. Let's do so right now. Father, thank you for being in heaven over and above our situations, yet close enough to be Abba to us when we call on your name. Help us to reverence your name with our lips and with our lives. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to focus on the next part of the Lord's Prayer, a part that Rasul thinks of as kind of a pledge of allegiance. That is a key mindset for Christians to have. Back with that in just a moment. Now, as we study the Lord's Prayer together in this episode, I'd like to tell you about a great book to help you in your prayer life as well. Elisa has written a book on the subject of prayer called When We Pray Like Jesus. As we're learning this week from the Lord's Prayer, uh, prayer is vital to our relationship with God. And as you read Elisa's book, you'll learn how important a posture of prayer that Jesus modeled in one of his other prayers, one in the Garden of Gethsemane just before his crucifixion, how important that posture is to our praying. That posture is reflected in two words, honest and abandoned. Elisa shares her journey of how those two words helped her grow closer to God and how they can be a memorable perspective for you as well. To get your copy of When We Pray Like Jesus by Elisa Morgan, just go to discovertheword.org and look for the store icon up at the top of the page. Click on store. And uh, last I checked, it was on page three of the store. All right. When We Pray Like Jesus by Elisa Morgan would be a good follow-up to our study this week. And you'll find it in the store at discovertheword.org. And now, the part of the Lord's Prayer that reminds Rasul of a kind of Pledge of Allegiance. Pop quiz. What does <laughs> almost every school child across the United States say at the beginning of each school day? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, why am I here? <laughs> what's for lunch? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what I hear. <laughs> is what's the hot lunch today? Yeah, I guess you're referring to maybe pledging allegiance to the flag. Yes. Did you all do it growing up every day? Oh yeah. yes. 
Yeah. Well, you know, when I was in first grade, I remember thinking Richard Stans must be a pretty important person. And I can't wait to learn about him because (laughs) I heard it as Into the Republic of Richard Stans. (laughs) (laughs) That's just one of many times I misheard. But the interesting thing is that America is rare in the world of instilling this practice. Students reciting a pledge each day. So it kind of made me wonder, what's the story behind it? I discovered that most historians, there's some internal debate, but most historians point to fears of disloyalty as a result of the Hmm. Civil War as the origin of the importance Mm. of pledges of allegiance dating back to the 1880s when they started to become more pronounced. And it kind of makes sense that concerns about loyalty right after a war between states, right, Mm -hmm. that kind of split the country would kind of crop up. But it is also interesting for the context to see that oftentimes their desire was that this sense of allegiance would kind of evoke a certain type of expression of commitment. And the next part of the Lord's Prayer that we will examine is a sort of a pledge of allegiance. And so let's mm-hmm. kind of take a moment to read this. Uh, could someone take Matthew six ten? Okay, it says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we previously talked about the first part of the prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, where Jesus instructs the disciples to honor God and to recognize him as an aspect of worship. But now in this part, the next aspect of this prayer that we talked about is a model. So it's not about saying the exact words, but about the framework and the idea is that he says, your kingdom come and your will be done. Well, what is the kingdom that Jesus is referring to here? Well, the word kingdom is basileia and it just means rule the Mm -hmm. rule of God or the authority of God. And Mm -hmm. I think when we hear the word kingdom, we tend to think of castles and thrones and things like that. But really the word kingdom, basileia, is just referring to the rule of God. Your reign, your control, your character, your leadership, your being, all of those kinds of concepts, you know, may that be what guides and rules everything that happens, which is hard to imagine because our world is so broken and messed up. Yeah, and part of it is as we become more like Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, our identity becomes less and less tied to worldly structures other than God. And our lives hopefully become more and more lined up with what God would desire for the world, which would push us to live differently because there's going to be Mm -hmm. things that a worldly kingdom would desire and work toward that would not be as honoring and good as what God would have. And so we like slowly become more and more shaped by that the more we follow God, which is probably why it's in the prayer, because we need so much help doing it. (laughs) Like, Lord, help us Mm -hmm. to live your way versus being tied too much to an earthly way. And remember, for the first hearers of this, the disciples, they'd been seeing already Jesus's authority and his kingdom rule invading Mm -hmm. brokenness in the world and making it whole again Mm -hmm. through Jesus's miracles. That power and authority that's a part of who he is as the King of kings and Lord of lords was being manifested. And so when they pray, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, they had actually seen that being accomplished. And I was thinking about how revolutionary Jesus was in that culture. And God's justice in our day 
often doesn't look like it fits into the status quo. So there is something radical in these words. It's calling mm-hmm. us to a different understanding. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so it's so rich as we're all kind of describing because as Bill mentioned, the kingdom of God is could be simply and broadly the rule of an eternal sovereign God over the universe. But then there's this other aspect. That's may your kingdom come, your way of doing things, your rule. But then there's may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the will being done on earth as it is in heaven, that's where this thing gets really personal. Because mm-hmm. that means mm-hmm. it's an invocation that even my heart and my choices and my decisions be aligned with this kingdom. And then it starts to make you wonder, well, what are the attributes of this kingdom? And it's we see sprinklings of this throughout the Old and New Testament. Um, specifically, I think about Psalm 97, 1 and 2. Did anybody have that? The Lord is king. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Okay, so this is a psalm. And mm-hmm. as you read in that translation, the Lord is king. There's this idea. So a kingdom has a king and mm-hmm. it describes that sense of rule, that sense of sovereignty. And in verse two, part of that description is righteousness and justice are the foundation mm. of his throne. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting that you see this aspect of righteousness and justice together. You know, mm-hmm. what does that mean, you think, to evoke an aspect that God's throne is based on righteousness and justice. Those two terms show up together throughout the Old Testament. And it feels like what's happening there is there's like a right relationship that God is offering through righteousness. So a right way of doing things, a right way of the world working, and that that will be just, it'll be fair, that when Mm -hmm. we look at it, we'll see that God is doing what is good and right. You know, it doesn't mean we see it right now all the time, But there's this kind of understanding that at the end of time, when we look back at all God has done, it'll be, oh, that was right and good and just and fair. I would even push it a little bit further. I think the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice because those are reflections of his character. Mm -hmm. He is righteous and just. And so because he is righteous and just, it makes sense that his throne would be founded on righteousness and justice, which are the expressions of those attributes. Yeah. But in our day, as we look at kings, we look so much at things like power, Mm -hmm. royalty, riches Mm -hmm. even. Again, and I would think that would be similar in that time, God's kingdom is so very different Mm -hmm. based Mm -hmm. on righteousness and justice. Yes, and it's so much more expansive. Mm -hmm. And when you think about looking at the gospel through the aspect of Jesus being the king, then you realize it's not just by happenstance or random that he's healing the sick. Mm -hmm. It's not by just random that he gives the Sermon on the Mount as kind of the rules of this new kingdom that he is establishing and inaugurating. And even flipping over the tables in the temple is a confrontation of the kingdom that he is coming to represent opposed to the types of performances of righteousness that the Pharisees were doing. But at the same time, it was alienating people from God and really even exploiting them. And this is something that we see in the Old Testament a lot, this tension of the ability to fully live out righteousness and justice, the kingdom. You know, the prophets talked all about that. I think about Amos, you know, as a famous verse where in uh, chapter 5, verse 21 through 24, 
Amos, speaking from God's perspective, writes, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Mm. Again, that echo. So this is a this is a striking passage, is it not? Yeah. Well, and throughout the Old Testament, oftentimes justice is tied directly to how you care for those who are most vulnerable mm-hmm. and look out for them. So the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the foreigner, and God continually calls the people that are supposed to reflect him and look like him in the world to be people who care for those who are most vulnerable. And when we think about even the context of the Matthew 6 prayer, mm-hmm. he says, kingdom come. And at the very beginning of the sermon, he describes all the people that he's talking about that are in the kingdom. And they're people that don't look anything like what we would expect, <laughs> right? They're those who are poor in spirit and who mourn and who are meek and who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Interesting word there. The merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you. Those are the people to which this new kingdom relates to, and those are the people that are in it. Uh, It's all the people that we wouldn't expect, but it ties directly into the Old Testament picture of who God is, a God who cares about righteousness and justice, those who are most vulnerable. Do you ever feel the tension between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms that we're living in now, or that even might be in your own heart? And if so, like, how do you see this prayer being somewhat of a corrective to the pressures that we might even feel around us? I think it's absolutely that way, Rasul. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a sense in which if we aren't feeling that tension, we're really not paying mm-hmm. attention because God's kingdom, by definition, his rule, his authority, his righteousness and justice are so different from the brokenness of this world that if we don't feel that tension between those things, then we're really not thinking clearly about who our God is and the kind of world that he wants us to be. It's such a contrast and um, it's so hard for, we live so fully in this world. So I I like what you've been saying, Russell, about this prayer as a model. It redirects us, realigns us to what is it we really long for? Absolutely. And we see throughout scripture that this investment, I would even say this priority, this alignment before Jesus says, okay, this is how you ask for things, or this is how you ask God to show up. He said, first, we have to align, Mm -hmm. pledge allegiance to his kingdom, to his way of doing things, because unless we do that, we're going to be praying for all sorts of stuff that actually might be even opposed to his kingdom of righteousness. Mm -hmm. His kingdom, his standard of righteousness mm-hmm. and his standard mm-hmm. of justice. But when we pray in alignment to that, it just gives us a whole different perspective. And, and one of the things I have found a lot of comfort in is the prayers of those who were in exile because they found themselves in a position where they were foreigners in their own land. They were seeking out God's presence while they were still in a kingdom that worshiped idols and that worshiped power and that literally was oppressing them, which is why they were there. And in the midst of that, I think about Nehemiah's prayer in Nehemiah chapter nine. He says, now, therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, 
Do not let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. And he goes on and just kind of lays out this prayer that recognizes both a sense of confession of how they've fallen short of the kingdom, but also an expectation of the fact that God would instill reign and rule and that what they were going through was only temporary. And so people often in our time look at prayer as the last resort. I can't do anything else, so let's pray. But really the model we have through Jesus is prayer is the first resort because it aligns us to what God is trying Mm -hmm. to do in and through our lives. When we pray for God's plan, his righteousness and his justice in our world as it is in heaven, we are praying to be more like Jesus ourselves. We're praying to not just God align the government, but where am I out of alignment? This is the kingdom we ultimately Mm -hmm. are invited to willingly pledge allegiance to every day. I invite one of you to pledge allegiance uh, and lead us in that prayer to God's kingdom. Lord, we pledge ourselves to you, to your kingdom, to your will, and trust that you truly know what's best for the world and what's best for us. And we pray that where we are out of alignment, that you would bring us back into alignment with your good and perfect way. Mm. Um, And we're sorry for the times when we pledge allegiance to other things that cause harm to others, cause harm to ourselves cause harm to your reputation and name in the world. So help us to not only pledge allegiance, but through your spirit, guide us to actually live that out in our lives today. Amen. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. 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 When have you been so intimidated by someone that you found it difficult to ask them for something? I'll share with you some of my pain. So in middle school, I had this big crush on this girl. And I asked her to go to the dance with me. She promptly said no. I was crushed. (laughs) But at the dance, I saw her and I was like, I'm going to ask her again. But I I had to work up the nerve. So I like literally went to the bathroom, looked myself in the mirror, gave a pep talk. You can do this. And mustered (laughs) up the courage to walk to her and extend my hand and ask one more time. And she stood up and gave me that dance. And I went back into the the bathroom afterwards and I was like yeah you the man you did it (laughs) Uh, (laughs) this is a true story that was a time when it was very difficult to ask again because I had been rejected before well I go to a situation that's real life too I was a for a season the leader of a nonprofit ministry and I had been invited to the White House where other leaders of nonprofit ministries were convening on a topic at the president's request And I remember walking in, we all had to have clearance ahead of time and I had my ID and all this fancy stuff. I was one of three women, but I needed to walk up to a group of men and they were all like six foot three and I'm five three. 
and they were all in their black dressy dressy suits and I knew who they were one of them I'd had an interaction with it wasn't very positive in the past but I needed to walk up and introduce and you know reconnect I wish there had been a bathroom wrestle for me to go to and, and talk to myself in the mirror I was so intimidated and so scared yeah but I did it and they were kind yeah to me, what comes to mind is uh, moments I've had to ask for forgiveness, and that can be so hard oh, yeah. sometimes where you're admitting to making a mistake or if you've like really hurt somebody because of something you've said. So like mistake, even that word mistake doesn't quite cut it because it was pretty painful. And it can be so rewarding to go mm. and say you're sorry, especially if they forgive you. But man, getting that courage to go and tell someone you're sorry and that you've messed up and all that, that's really hard sometimes. Yeah, I think part of it goes back to when we're kids, we're taught to have a high respect for people in positions of authority. And so then when you find yourself thrust into an encounter with one of those people, mm -hmm. there's just kind of this built-in inadequacy because they're all that right. and right. we aren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to back up that point, Bill, there was a iconic movie star a few decades ago named Dorothy Dandridge. And at the time she was considered one of the most beautiful people in the world. And when the person that she would later marry, he couldn't believe that she went out on a date with him. And he was like, why did you say yes? And he was like, you were literally like the only person that asked. And he was like, huh? And she said, yeah, everybody else assumed that I was already involved or that I was unapproachable because of my status. And so they didn't ask. <laughs> There's a wisdom about asking that when we confront the Lord, the God of the universe, that can be intimidating. You know, that can be a bit nerve wracking. That can even feel like if there was a time in the past that what we had asked for didn't come to pass, that we can even feel a sense of rejection. But in this section of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus gives us a simple invitation to ask. And so let's read that invitation in Matthew uh, 611. Can someone read that for us? If we start at the beginning, Jesus says in verse nine, pray then in this way, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. What do y'all notice about this request? It's daily, it's dependent, it's practical, it's essential for life. Yeah. The thing that I notice about it, Elisa, is that it's plural, not singular. It's not give me this mm -hmm. day my daily bread. That's good, Phil. But it's yeah. give us this day yeah. our daily yeah, bread. Yeah, what do you think is about that? Haddon Robinson, thanks to Brian, I know this because I never got to meet Haddon, but he used to say that if you had two loaves of bread, it means there's one for you, but there's also one for your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And so we often think of like, well, if I've got a couple loaves of bread, then that means I've got food for today and tomorrow. <laughs> but with this phrase, it really calls us to be thinking about our neighbor and not just ourselves. And, you know, for those of us who are on team Our Daily Bread, there's a great <laughs> connection, isn't there? That's right. This is our verse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> when the ministry started, it was weekly, a weekly radio program. And then shortly after it started... Dr. DeHaan started receiving requests for transcripts of the messages, and so they would gang a month of them together in booklets. So now they had a weekly and a monthly presence, and it was uh, in 1956 when they said, we need to try to do something to help people on a daily basis, and that's when the Our Daily hmm. Bread devotional 
was started up. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. That's yeah. helpful. And that history also reveals something interesting in Scripture. Uh, daily bread is kind of a theme in Scripture, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Exodus 16, the Lord provides manna, but instructs the people to only gather enough for the day. So they, the context is they're in the wilderness. There's not provision for them that is there. So then he rain, like literally just kind of from heaven provides them this unique wafer that can kind of sustain them so that they don't have to struggle with starving to death. But he tells them to access it daily, not longer mm-hmm. than that. So what is it about this daily rhythm of a provision that God is instructing them to engage in? Because it could be argued that it would be simpler to just say, hey, give it to me once a month and then I can store up and then I'll talk to you next month. I think it's so much about dependence. Um, Mm -hmm. Like you said with your example, Daniel, we think if we have two loaves of bread, one's for today and one's for tomorrow. But the reality is one's for maybe today and the other's to share. I mean, the, the dependence of the Israelites on manna in the Old Testament was a daily. I mean, if you tried to gather up more, it would spoil. We try to take care of ourselves and our independence and be self-sufficient. Yeah. And God longs for us to understand our constant need for him. Yeah, I think you're right, Elisa. And I think that is what, at least for me personally, may make this maybe the simplest part of the prayer, the most challenging, because we do live in a culture where people get paid every other week and they go do their grocery shopping for the next two weeks. And we're kind of trained into a different rhythm than the daily rhythm. And I think that makes it difficult for us to really actualize the daily dependence that I think this is calling us to. Don't you think part of our tradition of saying grace over our food comes from underlining this dependency? Yeah. You know, because you're right, Bill, we go to the store much differently, but in New Testament times, it was you'd go buy food for this meal, you know? Mm -hmm. And ironically, culturally, especially in Western cultures, more food goes to waste than perhaps ever in the history of the world because we buy so much and we store it and then we forget that it's in the back of the fridge and then it goes bad or whatever. And because we're not dependent on each day, and so it's actually hard for us sometimes to even picture what an each day dependence is. Now, there are tons of people all around the world and next door Mm -hmm. that every day they don't know where their food's coming from. That's right. Which is the challenge of this, is the, the give us this day our daily bread, meaning that we're also the providers for others as God is a provider for us. And it is, it's like just a rhythm of dependence that's really hard for us to get our minds around. But I can't imagine anything that would be more freeing too, though. If we could actually get to the point of knowing that God will provide and we can trust him and just trust him to be the one who provides... It would take off so much weight and stress and anxiety that we carry every day to try to provide for ourselves. And of course, we have some role to play, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like we just sit back and pray this prayer. But at the same time, there's just such a freeing nature to this prayer to trust God instead of ourselves. You make me wonder, Daniel, just for an analogy's sake, you're right. A lot of people are dependent totally on each day to find a meal. But what if it's not food, if it's not bread, what is the thing? That still, each day, you and I, in the Western culture, are dependent for. And I'm thinking about air. I'm thinking about health. I'm thinking about relationships and our emotions. Job stability. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Financial 
stability. I mean, there are a lot of things that maybe we could slide in place of the bread, but they are the bread that we are dependent on God for. And of course, Jesus ups the ante in the wilderness when uh, he's tempted by Satan, turn these stones into bread, illegitimately meet your legitimate need. He reciting Deuteronomy says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There's this mm. priority of the provision, first being the word of God for us each day, give us this day our daily bread, and then the provision that we can trust him for afterwards, which is why in Matthew 6, he would later say, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added mm -hmm. to you. Never worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. And so we get to trust God each day for our daily bread. It's a petition. It's an invitation to talk to God and to let him know what our needs are and to let him know that we believe where our provision comes from. Let me uh, close us with uh, that type of a prayer. Lord, as we sit here today, we recognize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. We thank you for your providing, not necessarily all of our wants, but all that we've needed. We ask for those who struggle with food insecurity and not knowing where their next meal is coming from. God, would you provide as you have provided for us and would you allow us to be vessels of provision and lord uh, we ask that you would help us to recognize that we are not to live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from you give us this day our daily bread in jesus name amen amen yeah, that is a great reminder that you and I truly are dependent on God for all of our daily needs. And that's probably why Jesus included this in his model prayer, teaching his disciples and us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, you're listening to Discover the Word, the small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries. As Rasul said, this is kind of our verse. Well, we will wrap up this study titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray by looking at three pretty crucial areas of life that the end of the prayer addresses. Forgiveness received, forgiveness given, and temptation. That's coming up after a quick preview of where the Discover the Word group goes next for an extended study of an entire book of the New Testament. Next time on the Discover the Word podcast... We're going to start a great adventure together as a group here in this little room with our friends at the table. Today, we're going to begin a six-week journey of reading somebody else's mail. We haven't yet said what the book is. Du -du -du. We're doing Galatians. Yeah, and so who wrote this letter, who it was written to, why it was written, and what was the main thing Paul wanted to talk to this church about? Uh, Bill Crowder says this is the angriest letter that Paul wrote. Why is that? Well, that's what we'll be walking through in the next six episodes of the podcast, part one of a study of Galatians called It's All About Grace on the next Discover the Word podcast. And now here are Rasul and Elisa and Bill and Daniel to talk about some things addressed in the closing part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgiveness, both forgiveness received and forgiveness given, and temptation. 
Okay, it's confession time. <laughs> when it comes to food, what's your biggest temptation? I'm going to sound like I'm contradicting what Jesus said that we discussed in the last conversation, but for me, it's bread. I mean, <laughs> I, I love bread. I One of my favorite things about the times I've spent in Russia and Israel is that in both places, the bread is just phenomenal. I mean, I spent a weekend in Moscow living off of nothing but bread and butter, and I couldn't have been happier. It was great. <laughs> I can relate to that. Mine, I was going to say, is bread and sugars. So just all the carbs. When I think of food, it just depends on the meal as to what might be most tempting, because I, I do find myself pretty like stereotypically stuck in like certain menu items for each meal. Definitely sugary carb-like things are pretty mm. high on the list. A good key lime pie or a cheesecake or, well, really just any kind of pie. <laughs> I think about Thanksgiving, and for a lot of people, Thanksgiving is all about the turkey and stuff. I can't tell you how many times at Thanksgiving I've completely skipped the turkey and gone for the stuffing and gravy, the mashed potatoes and gravy, and the macaroni and cheese. I mean, I, I'm all about the sides. I could care oh, less about the turkey. You're making me think of my grandson. He's 18, and he piled up his plate this year with turkey, mashed potatoes, crescent rolls, and gravy. It was just like this beige mound. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, why am I talking about this? Because the reality is that temptation is something we can all relate to. And We've all had goals or desires, whether it was food for some of us or maybe that economic budget. There's mm -hmm. sometimes a gap mm -hmm. between that which we know we ought to do and that which we really, really want to do. And as we conclude this conversation on how Jesus taught the disciples to pray, uh, we wrap up in what in a lot of ways is the longest section here in that it kind of breaks down this aspect of both fighting and failing to overcome temptation. So, Daniel, if you could read the Lord's Prayer again, just the entirety, and we'll focus on verses 12 and 13 in this conversation of uh, Matthew 6. Pray then in this way, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This is one of the main reasons why there's some who say we should refer to this as the disciples prayer and not the Lord's prayer, because mm. Jesus would never need to ask for forgiveness. And this prayer references that. But the disciples definitely would. And we still do. What's something you notice about the aspect and the way that sin is talked about in this Prayer. Well, it's presented as debt, that it's a debt that's owed. And when people sin against us, it's a debt that they owe to us. And in the old King James, it was, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Yes, yeah, so it's both, specific. both and, isn't it? Yeah. And that's an important nuance to kind of mention, because if you just read it in the translation that I did, you might not know it's connected to like wrongdoing or something like that because mm -hmm. it just like forgive us our debts. So for those who go into debt on something, forgive me for the debt and yeah. forget, help me to forgive people that owe me money. There is a much deeper thing going on here. And we see that with, you know, forgive us our sins or forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our debts. It's that like we've hurt someone in some way. And as a result, there's some kind of deficit 
there, whether it's trespassing or sin or whatever, and others have hurt us in some way, and so there's some kind of deficit or hole that needs to be filled. So it's like the filling of that brokenness. Mm. And you see it lived out in so many teachings, both of Jesus and in Paul's writings. There are a lot of underlinings of this model of needing to both be forgiven and to forgive. Yeah, and also this aspect of the cost of that forgiveness mm-hmm. is reflected in this aspect of a debt. If you owe someone money, and we see Jesus even use a parable of someone who owed a whole right. lot of money that they could never ever repay. And the sense of forgiveness was really vividly displayed in how much money the person was willing to forgive payment for. And we even still refer to it as loan forgiveness today, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there's this aspect of debt. Now, the thing that's interesting about this in particular is we know that core to the Christian teaching is that Jesus' substitutionary atonement, like that he died to pay our debt, right? It is finished. The debt has been Mm -hmm. paid. So one Mm -hmm. could ask the question, if Jesus forgave all our debts, why are we still asking for our debts to be forgiven in this prayer? Because we keep sinning. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that that Jesus forgave us doesn't prevent us from continuing to make poor choices and do harmful things to other people. We still continue those practices in spite of everything that he's done for us. Yeah, and even if we see his covering, his debt payment by dying, to cover all of the stuff that we'll do in the future. Jesus covered our brokenness in the past, our current brokenness and the brokenness we're going to cause. But this is about relationships between people too. So sure, Jesus may have covered that brokenness, but the Bible continues to call us into reconciliation with one another, to forgive our enemies, to forgive others, and to seek reconciliation with one another. And that's where, if I could try to put myself in the place of the first hearers, I can imagine the forgive us our sins. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I need to do that with God. As we also forgive others. Wait, what? (laughs) Where did that piece come in? Because we often think of this relationship with God, me and God, dealing with my sin with God or whatever. But just like in the last part of the verse If we have two loaves of bread, we're called to give one to our neighbor. Just as we've received forgiveness in this part of the prayer, we're called to show forgiveness to others too. That's good, Daniel. Yeah, and even it relates it as we forgive others. Like it's the, you know, it's implied Mm -hmm. that it's there. So there's this powerful invitation to receive the forgiveness that God offers. I think about 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, which says, if we say that we do not have any sin, We're deceiving ourselves and we're not being truthful to ourselves. If we make it our habit to confess our sins in his faithful righteousness, he forgives us for those sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So is this invitation to confess, but then also that same forgiveness should be extended to others. And then there's this other part that says, and lead us not into temptation right? But deliver us from the evil one. That's interesting, right? Like this is kind of like preventative (laughs) measure. He's not just saying, hey, this is how you can have your debts forgiven, but then this is how we can get to a place where they never happen in the first place. What do you make of that petition or that request? Is this somehow implying that God is the responsible for leading us in the temptation? What, What are you thinking about 
what Jesus is saying here. Just two chapters earlier in Matthew's gospel, Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted or tested. I know that two chapters is not super close context, but there is that context of the Holy Spirit moving Jesus to a place where he was going to be tested in a sense, showing him to win out over the tests that our first parents failed to win out over in the Garden of Eden. I think that's good context, Bill. But I'm also reminded of in James, where Mm -hmm. it says that when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. And so it's like, it is a tricky phrase. Mm -hmm. There has to be more going on here in some way, because... In other places, it, it says that God doesn't tempt us. So I don't know that I know how to reconcile that. But <laughs> If you think of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, that when we're tempted, God will provide a way out. I also mm-hmm. think of Paul talking about in, in Romans 6 and 7 that he basically, Jesus' death on the cross gives us victory over sin in that we can choose not to sin, yeah. whereas before we couldn't. So this is a big ball of string that you pull on an end and a knot comes, but the overall ball is in God's hands and he understands how it works. And here's something that I found helpful in a ESV study note. It mentions that the word translated temptation is from the Greek parasmus, and it can either indicate temptation or testing. And the meaning here likely carries the sense, allow us to be spared from difficult circumstances that would tempt us to sin. So it's not implying that God directly tempts believers, although we can experience, as Bill mentioned, what we saw Jesus in the wilderness, a testing that we could encounter and that this is asking for God's provision of protection in the midst of that testing, but not temptation. I think that's really important because it goes to God's heart and intent for us. He's mm-hmm. not looking for ways to trip us up and make a mess out of our lives. What he does allow are tests that can draw us closer to him and thereby strengthen us. And that's because his heart is for us. It's not against us. And I'm really glad we're talking about the Matthew one, because that one ends with rescue us from the evil one. In the Luke, Lord's Prayer, it just ends with do not bring us to the time of trial or do not bring us into temptation. So in the Matthew one, we get even more help because it feels like it really ends with the point of this is God leading us away from evil or from the evil mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're trusting him for. And so I'm, I'm very thankful for the way Matthew ends his Lord's Prayer <laughs> versus Luke, where it's just like, don't lead us into temptation. Right. Well, why? Well, because you're a, you're a God who leads us away from evil, leads us away from the evil one. And I think this is instructive for why it's helpful to see the Lord's Prayer as a model that the scripture reveals and not as just rote, because all of scripture creates a composite picture. And so it's important for us to see the evil one because we realize the evil one, Satan, is responsible for all the evil in the world that, as you read in James, that every good and perfect gift comes from God. And so that's what we're up against. And then I think fittingly, there's a kind of doxology that are in some versions and and that are not in others. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Mm. I mean, first, let's just kind of address the fact that some translations or some Bibles don't have that. How do you make sense of that and, and why it's even there? In my translation, and by mine, I mean the one I used, not the one that I wrote. Uh, I've never <laughs> written a translation. Uh, it has that doxology in brackets with a footnote mm-hmm. that explains that those words don't appear in 
in the earliest manuscripts. And I think, you know, when it comes to manuscript evidence, we've talked about other places in the New Testament where there's a disputed text or a disputed portion of Scripture. And none of us are scholars in the field of textual criticism or manuscript evidence. That's a scholarly discipline that's way outside my parameters. But what I know is that there are some manuscripts that contain it. The oldest ones don't. And from a scholarly perspective, what I read from people who are smarter than me is that they consider the oldest manuscripts the most reliable ones because they're closest to the original source manuscripts. And so that's why something that's not found in the oldest ones might be left out of a particular place. Amen. And at the same time, we can all still rest assured that those words, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever are true. (laughs) Yeah. And so in light of that, let us close this series and this conversation with reciting the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And I hope that as we've walked through this model prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, that you've been encouraged to pray and that there's some memorable insights and perspectives that you're taking away from these conversations that will help you in those times when you're struggling to have a consistent and meaningful prayer life. Well, you've been listening to Discover the Word. Elisa Morgan, Bill Crowder, Daniel Ryan Day, and Rasul Berry have been your study partners for this study of the Lord's Prayer called Lord Teach Us to Pray. Discover the Word is a small group Bible study from Our Daily Bread Ministries in Grand Rapids, Michigan in which we invite you to walk with us through topics and passages that inform the way we read the scriptures, that challenge us as we live our lives as followers of Christ, and always point us to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Well, at Discover the Word and Our Daily Bread Ministries, we want to help you as you engage the scriptures and grow closer to God. And that's why we have these conversations each week and why We make available so many other Bible engagement resources, many at no cost to you. But we couldn't do that without those who invest financially in helping us accomplish our mission. And so thank you to those who partner with us. Your donations really do make a difference. And if you'd like to give right now, simply go to discovertheword.org and click on the Donate tab. Well, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Hedinga. Discover the Word is provided by Our Daily Bread Ministries.